morning. Glad that you're here. As has already been said, want to wish a uh, happy Father's Day to, uh, to all the dads out there. And of course, we're also mindful of those who, uh, this is a difficult day for them. Uh, either maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your father, maybe you didn't have a dad in your life, and uh, remind, uh, just mindful of those who have, uh, who have lost their fathers. So uh, we're trying to, uh, want to try to be mindful of, um, of, of all today. But uh, we're glad that uh, you're here today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Do we have any Star Wars fans among us? Who are the Star Wars fans? Oh, good. We got more than I thought. Very good. Very good. Well, I love the Star Wars movies. You know, they came out when I was a kid and saw them in the theater and just, you know, I thought it was incredible. One of the greatest things about the Star Wars movie was the introduction of the lightsaber. Yes, everybody wanted a lightsaber. You know, I was no exception. I wanted a lightsaber. To be able to strike my enemies down with a beam of light was just the greatest dream ever. And when, you know, I was just mesmerized. I, I missed everything else in the story once the lightsaber was, was introduced because I just I wanted one of these. And uh, I finally, I, you know, I got one when I, was in, uh, when I was in third grade. But I loved those movies. And, you know, like any good dad, I have passed that love on to my children, uh, forcefully or not. Either way, my boys, they love Star Wars movies as much as I do. And they've seen all of them. And they are, you know, you know how... Most of the time, your kids have it so much better than what you had. I had one lightsaber. They've got like 30 lightsabers that do all kinds of stuff, make noise and light up and buzz and they shoot out. And I just had one green one. That, that was all it did. Didn't make any noise, didn't light up. They have ones that like hook together and you can make a spear out of it. You can make like a star that spins and this little bitty lightsaber blades just spinning. And that, you know, they've got all of the, uh, just all the costumes and the masks and the helmet and Darth Vader and all of this other stuff. And uh, uh, remember one time when Jackson was about three, we were involved, we were just, you know, we were in a huge, intense lightsaber battle. Now, Jackson's favorite character is, anybody want to take a guess? Darth Vader. He loves Darth Vader. Always has loved Darth Vader. So he's got the red lightsaber, and I had the blue, and we're in this just epic battle in my house and I heard Jackson said to me one time we're battling away and he goes daddy I am your father <laughs> now if you don't understand that reference you need to go look at episode five uh, the empire strikes back for those of you that are not Star Wars nerds now then it's kind of confusing when you start thinking about the chronological history of the Star Wars because in 77 when George Lucas released the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, that's actually episode four. It's not episode one like you would think. Okay, Empire Strikes Back is episode five, and then Return of the Jedi, the last one, is episode six. Now then, I loved all of those movies as a kid. In the late 90s, George Lucas decided that he was going to 
create and then release the prequels to the story. Episodes 1, 2, and 3, but yet they're coming along in the 90s instead of the 70s and 80s, like episodes 4, 5, and 6. So trying to kind of keep up with it is a little confusing. But I was excited about it because I love the movies, and I wanted to see what was going to happen. You know, I was excited about the new you know, advancements in CGI and uh, really excited to, to learn more about the backstory. And as they came out, you know, I, I liked them. I was excited about it. But there is a group of people who did not like them. We'll call them the purists. Okay, do we have any Star Wars purists among us that did not like the first three? I'm glad we have one honest person here. And that's good because you're going to help me make a point in just a minute. Although you might not like the point. But the purists, like <clears throat> Tim and others, the purists did not like these new movies. Okay? Uh, the story, you know, they didn't want to know about the story, the, the graphics, they didn't want any of that stuff. Some of the characters they didn't really like, you know, Jar Jar Binks and just some of those other ones, they just weren't really, really thrilled that, that these new movies were, were coming out. You know, and then when Disney got involved and kind of took over the franchise, they were really kind of freaking out, not knowing what was going to do. And now you go down to the Disney parks and they have these just huge sections of the park that are devoted to Star Wars. And, you know, now it just seems like they're pumping out a Star Wars movie every single year. Okay, now I think this is great because what they're doing is they're filling in the backstory. In fact, Jackson and I went and saw Solo on Monday. And I thought it was great because you learn about Chewbacca, and I won't give any spoilers away. He's already threatened me not to give spoilers away. But you learn about how he meets Chewbacca, and you learn about you know, some of the other characters like Lando Calrissian and the Millennium Falcon and all this stuff, and it's really, really good. But, you know, uh, these purists... They're not really thrilled about all of these other Star Wars movies that are coming out. You know, the, the, the basic argument is, I think, that, you know, these other movies are going to kind of pollute and contaminate the original story. It'll take away. You know, they're good like they are. We don't need anything else. Now then, and thanks for nodding along with me there. I'm not a purist, okay? I, I love the movies, and I don't necessarily like the new ones as much as I like the original ones, you know, because I was a kid, and it was just mesmerizing. But I do like all of the movies. You know, and it's, it's fun to sit around and to, to debate those things with the, with the purists. But where this is not fun, and where it is not funny, is when you encounter people like this in, in real life and in, in real situations. You know, you come into contact with somebody who uh, you don't necessarily agree with. Or you come across people whose standards are not the same as maybe yours would be. Maybe they don't dress the same. Maybe they, they act differently. Their behavior is not what yours would be. Or they have a, a different background. They don't have the education that, that you have uh, or the pedigree. It might be someone of a, of a different race or, or from a different neighborhood. And where this really gets dangerous is when this kind of thought infiltrates the church. You know, when those kinds of things come into the church. And I've seen, I've seen things like this happen. I have seen and, and, and heard with my own ears church leaders suggesting that people should attend another church because of their race. You know, and those things like that are, are shameful. 
And they shouldn't be allowed to, 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 penetrate, to penetrate the church. Well, today, as we come to, to Acts chapter 15, this is a very, very important chapter. In fact, this is, a, this is probably the most monumental chapter in the entire book. And today, we begin the second half of the book. It's hard to believe that we've already gone through 14 chapters. And today, we start the, the second half of this journey. Now then, uh, a guy named Rick Ashley, who preaches at the hills out in... Uh, out in, uh, in, in Texas. He's done some really, really good work with this text. So I'm going to be leaning on, on some of his stuff today just because it is really, really good. But the context is that as you come to, to Acts 15, we know over the last couple of weeks that, that Paul and Barnabas have been out on the very first missionary journey. You know, they, they set sail, and they went down to Cyprus, and then they turned and went north, and they they, they went to the, to the synagogues, and then they planted churches all throughout the, uh, the region. And as they did this, they came in contact with people who were different from them. They dressed differently. They acted differently. They ate differently than Jews did. They came across people who would eat things like shellfish and pork. You know, and pork is good, right? Yeah? Yeah? Pork is good. You know, and so they're encountering people like this. That, but not only did they have these, you know, they didn't have the, the food laws and the dietary restrictions, the people had these weird ritualistic cleansings that they had to do, and they had to be washed, or things would be considered unclean, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't get near them. And then they would also come across people, maybe this is the big one, this is the big kicker here, people uh, that were, were uncircumcised. And to be a Jew and to come across someone who is uncircumcised means that that person is standing on the outside of God's covenant family. But yet as Paul and Barnabas set out on these missionary journeys, they go to the synagogues and then they go to these these Gentile villages, and they begin proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That Jesus is for everybody. That Jesus saves all. And you see these Gentiles, these non-Jews, who are turning to Jesus in droves. And they have this very successful mission. And so Paul and Barnabas, you remember, you know, they, they've had some tough times. They tried to run them out of town at one point, and they eventually grabbed Paul and stoned him. And instead of taking a, a different way home, they went back through those same areas to encourage those new churches and the new believers along the way. And they finally get back home to Antioch, and it says they gathered the church together, and they gave them this mission report. And they talked about all of the good things, all of the good things that God had done. Chapter 14, verse 27 says, After they arrived, they gathered the church together, they reported everything that God had done with them, that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Well, you know as well as I do that news travels fast, right? And so the word began to spread about what God was doing among these people. And eventually, the news of these Gentile converts makes, it way, makes its way back home to Jerusalem where sort of the mothership is, the mother church. And they begin to hear 
about everything that has happened, and it is then that a question begins to circulate among the Jewish Christians that are in Jerusalem. And that question is, should we circumcise these new believers or not? You know, should we circumcise these believers? Because if you were a Jew, circumcision was the identity mark of God's people. Not just for, you know, a couple of years, not just a hundred years, but for a few thousand years, this had been the identity marker. It told you if you were a man, it told you who you were. It identified your heritage. And these early Christians, the early Christians that we have read about up to these missionary journeys, they were Jews. And of course to them, the question of, of should we circumcise or not is not even on their radar. But then as Paul and Barnabas go out and they begin converting these Gentiles who don't know anything about Moses, who don't know anything about the law, the question was raised, as, you know, is, this, is this okay? Is it okay that they are becoming Christians without being circumcised? Because think about what that was like. If you were a Jew and you are waiting the coming of the promised Messiah, then to learn that Jesus is and was the promised Messiah, the hope of all Israel, and you've given your life to Him, you're overjoyed because God is doing what He said He would do. He is fulfilling His promises. The hope of Israel has come and He's given new life. And if you are a Jewish Christian, you're wondering how on earth can you understand Jesus and you've never heard of Moses? Or as Rick Ashley would say, how do you get to Calvary when you don't know anything about Sinai? You see, the question of the day is this. The issue wasn't could, uh, the issue was, wasn't couldn't the Gentiles be saved. It was did they have to be circumcised in order to be saved? In other words, do they have to go through the screen door of Moses to get through the front door of Jesus? You see, and that's what Acts 15, that's what Acts 15 is about. A uh, biblical scholar by the name of Ben Witherington III, he says this about this chapter. He says, it's not an exaggeration to say that Acts 15 is the most crucial chapter in the whole book. Luke understands that there had to be a conclusion about what constituted the people of God and what the basis was for their relationship. And as you come to this chapter, as we come to this text, this is monumentally important. And, and what happens here and what is decided in this chapter is important for us today. Okay, What was decided in this council that we're fixing to read about had an effect on all of us. So let's begin reading together in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there it is right there. You have these Gentile churches that Paul and Barnabas have planted, but then you have this group from Jerusalem who are going to these churches going to these new Christians and saying, you see it right there in verse 1, unless you're circumcised, you're, you, you can't be saved. Okay? Think about what Jesus said. He said, go into what? All the world. Go into all the world. Making disciples. Baptizing them in my name and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Right? That was Jesus. I mean, that's the, what we know of as the Great Commission from, from Matthew 28. But the implication of these Jewish Christians is this go into all the world circumcising and baptizing. You see that? Because what they're saying is, yeah, that's great. We're so glad that you found Jesus. We have too. But you need to know about Moses before you really understand Jesus. You need to be circumcised before salvation truly kicks in. Okay, and so this is causing a problem. And it says that, and it's just, it's almost kind of a throwaway line that Luke gives us, but he says that Paul and Barnabas engaged in serious argument and debate. That word, that one phrase, engaged in serious argument and debate, is huge. Okay, the whole book of Galatians is about that and so what Paul does he's he's angry about this and so he fires off the book of Galatians which is believed to be the earliest letter that Paul ever wrote the very first one and when you read that thing you can tell that he is not happy he doesn't open up with a greeting of of, of any consequence he doesn't open up his letters like he normally does giving praise and thanks he just jumps right in and says this stuff is wrong there's false teachers coming. They're giving you a new gospel. Don't believe it. And so what he does is he writes the, the, the letter to the Galatian churches. He sends it off, and then he heads up to Jerusalem to try to sort this matter out. Verse 2 says that he and Barnabas and some others were, were appointed to go to the Jerusalem and meet with the church leaders and try to figure this thing out. Now then understand, Paul is not confused about the matter. Okay, He is not coming to the elders and the leaders of the Jerusalem church saying, hey, tell me what to do about this. He's going to put this matter to bed. Okay, He knows what the answer is and he is going to settle this for once and for all because it is causing a tremendous problem in these churches. Imagine if you had never been circumcised and then all of a sudden as an adult male you find out there's a little surgery that you have to have. 
And if you want salvation, it's not really elective. You're going to have a hard time convincing people of that, okay? You're just going to have a hard time convincing them. But this is what these people from Jerusalem are saying. You must be circumcised in order to be saved. And so he writes Galatians and he heads off to Jerusalem and he stands up and he kind of talks about what God has been doing. And then some of the Pharisees who had become Christians stand up and say, wait a minute, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now then watch what happens. Verse 6, the apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you were aware that in the early days God made a choice among you. And that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary... We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name, and the words of the prophets agree with this. It is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes all things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. That's pretty clear, right? Notice, notice how each man who speaks has his, his own emphasis. Peter stands up and he makes his case from history. He's saying, hey, look, we've already been down this road. Do you not remember the whole Cornelius thing? Do you not remember that I was told by the Lord to go to Cornelius' house? That before I even finished my sermon, the Holy Spirit came down on them and that they were all baptized? Do you not remember that whole God accepts everyone who loves Him and fears Him? He says, we've already been here. Now then, this is monumentally important because Peter... He's one of the, the pillars of the church, okay? He's one of the leaders. He's the rock. He's the one. He, is the, he was the, you know, one of the closest ones to Jesus, and he is saying, Peter, on the rock that I am Jesus Christ, that I am the Messiah, I'm going to build this church, and you're going to help me do it. Peter believes that the power of the gospel has cleansed the Gentiles of any moral defilement that they may have possessed in the eyes of the Jewish people. 
He believes that anything that is a barrier to fellowship, anything that is a barrier to fellowship with God's people has been removed through Jesus Christ. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they, they make their case for ministry. It's as if Paul was saying, hey, look, this is what we're doing. We're doing all of these signs, all of these wonders, all of these people are turning to Jesus. If this was a false gospel, then why is the Holy Spirit showing up, empowering all of these miraculous things as an endorsement? You can clearly see that God is behind this movement. And then finally, James stands up and he makes his argument, makes his case from prophecy. Now this isn't James, the brother of John. Remember, he was killed just a few chapters earlier. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who at one time was an atheist, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's a believer. And not only is he a believer, James is the leader. He is the top dog in the Jerusalem church. Okay, He is the one who wrote the book of James that we looked at at the beginning of last year. He is the top guy. And he makes his point from prophecy, saying, hey, look, Amos talked about this, that God was going to rebuild everything, that he was going to pull all people together, even the Gentiles, those who call on my, call on my name. You see, there's a lot of significance from this chapter. The early church took a question that for centuries had been either or. You're either circumcised or you're not. In other words, you're either in part of the covenant family or you're not. They took an either or question. And they concluded that it is a both and issue not an either-or issue. They concluded it was a both-and issue. You see, they didn't discourage circumcision. They didn't deny it to anyone who wanted to be circumcised. They simply said, we cannot bind on everyone the right of circumcision. It is a both-and question. It is not an either-or question. Okay, It's not you're circumcised or you're not in. It's if you want to be circumcised, that's great. But that's not the marker of salvation. That's not what really matters. What really matters is Jesus. Rick actually says that uh, with every church problem, there is a simple and wrong solution to make a law that restricts freedom in Christ and says everyone has to live under this law. The early church didn't do that. And had they done so, all of us who are Gentiles wouldn't be here today. That's why this issue is important to us. That's why this chapter is considered to be the most important chapter in the whole book. So here are some takeaways. Well, let me stop there first. I think, I think the key to understanding the whole passage is this verse right here. When James stands up and he says, this is my judgment. In other words, this is under my authority. 
we should not cause difficulties for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, quit requiring circumcision. Quit requiring this stuff about the law. Peter has already said that we can't even keep it ourselves, so why would we force it on anybody else? People who have never lived this way a day, a day in their lives. So here's some of the takeaways from Acts 15. The first, there was clear and respectful communication. There's no name-calling, there's no labeling, there's no slandering, and no one's character was assassinated. Remember last week we talked about this. Uh, we said, if your position is so weak that you have to assassinate someone's character to prove your point, you need to rethink your position. Now then, your position might be right, but if all you've got is name-calling and tearing apart the person's character, then you need to go back and rethink your position. Okay? Because when it denigrates into that, guess what? You've lost. You are done. You've got no leg left to stand on. There was clear and respectful communication. Number two, the believers listened with an open mind. You notice the verbs that are in this text? Welcome, listened, fell silent. They considered. They looked for the leading of God in their arguments. And this kind of maturity requires an open-mindedness that can only be the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, they turned to the Word of God for confirmation. James based his argument straight out of the book of Amos. They arrived at a conclusion only because they were convinced it was biblical. They looked at an old text in a fresh and new way. They stood under the Word of God, not over it. They didn't come to the Bible like so many people have done, and I've done myself, saying, you know what, I know what I believe, let me just go find a few verses to back up what I believe. They came to the Bible saying, even if what I, have, even what I, even if what I believe has to be changed, I'm willing to change what I believe in order to stand under the Word of God. And then number four, they were more committed to the mission of God than to their own heritage. They chose their commission over their tradition. Their new identity was in Christ Jesus, not in circumcision, not in law-keeping, only in Jesus. They set aside their tradition, which imagine how difficult that would be for an Orthodox Jew to set aside everything you've ever known for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of, of, of others. And like I said, I think the key, I think the key to understanding the whole passage is in verse 19. Let's not make it any more difficult. Let's not cause any difficulties because the gospel is barrier enough. Right? I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ is hard enough as it is. Paul's going to write and say, you've all sinned, you've all fallen short of the glory of God. You know, that's pretty tough to take, right? The gospel is barrier enough. Your only hope is to confess your wickedness and throw yourself at the mercy of a crucified Jew. 
So we shouldn't make it any harder than it is to come to Christ. And so what they do is they write a letter. And they send it with Barnabas and Paul, and they even send some Jews from Jerusalem to say that, yes, we're coming with authority and we approve of what this letter says. And it says, hey, look, we love you guys. Here's a couple of things we want you to avoid. Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid eating meat that's been offered to idols. Other than that, we're glad you're part of the family. And it says that as they read that letter in verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its because of its encouragement. You see, we should not make it any harder to come to Christ than it is because the gospel is barrier enough. I mean, Jesus himself in Luke 9 said, take up your cross daily and follow after me. That brings me to my point for the morning, and it's simply this. Community connection is that Jesus breaks down all barriers and welcomes all to the kingdom of God. He breaks down all barriers and welcomes all people to the kingdom of God. In that that first letter, that, that letter of Galatians, Paul would write some of his most famous words when he says, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, There is no male or female since you are, say this with me, all one in Christ Jesus. What he is saying is that in Jesus Christ, we're all on equal ground. We're all on equal footing. There is no person that is more important than another. Anything that you've used to divide yourselves goes out the window. There's no race that is more important than another one. We're all God's people. Okay? Anything that you've used to oppress somebody and and gain some importance from yourself, guess what? That's out the window. That doesn't matter. We're all one people in Christ Jesus. Okay? Any hierarchical hierarchical thing, uh, patriarchal thing, okay, where the men do everything, that doesn't matter. That goes out the window. We're all one in Christ Jesus. This is what he's saying. Paul is saying that Jesus breaks through all the boundaries. Okay? He is writing and saying, look, this circumcision thing, if you want to do it, that's fine, but we cannot demand it as a part of salvation. And then later on, Paul's going to take Timothy on a mission trip. On the second mission trip, and guess what he's going to have Timothy do? He's going to have him circumcised. We're like, what kind of sense does that make? Well, think about it. Timothy was half Jewish. His mother was Jewish, and his father was a Greek. And so, by the Jews, he's considered a Gentile. He's not considered a Jew. He's not given half credit, partial credit, whatever. Okay, he is considered a Gentile outside of the covenant. Now, on this second journey, Paul wants to go and still visit some of the synagogues. He wants to encourage them, but he knows that if he brings Timothy along, 
they're not going to be as willing to listen because they think he's an outsider. And so he has him circumcised in order that they will listen to the message of Jesus. He doesn't do it as a requirement for salvation. He's doing it to remove another barrier for people to come to Christ Jesus. He was all about removing things so that the gospel could be preached. He didn't require it for salvation. And so if Jesus breaks down barriers and invites all to the kingdom, and if we are Jesus' people who are supposed to be doing things on earth as they are in heaven, what does that mean we need to be doing? We need to be helping break down the barriers, right? Right? We must break down the barriers. Okay? Now that I've got three, and there's way more than three. These are just ones that I just put up here. Here's some of the barriers to the gospel. Barrier number one, lack of love for others from many Christians. That's one of the biggest knocks on Christians today. That we don't love anybody else except ourselves. And then, and, and, and realistically, that's, that's, that's got to be nuanced because a lot of Christians don't even love other Christians. Am I right? Come on now. There's a lot of Christians that don't even love other Christians. Okay, much less anybody else. There are so many people out there who see Christians as some of the most unloving and ungraceful people in the world. And some of the people who I have seen and heard rail the hardest against refugees are Christians. And if you find yourself in that camp, I want you to remember one thing. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus came from heaven to earth as a refugee. And so it might do us good to spend some time looking at the Sermon on the Mount to see what Jesus actually said about some of these things. Barrier number two, hypocrisy among Christians. That's probably the biggest one. Okay? Where we, you know, we claim to live one way and we tell others to live one way, yet we don't even do it ourselves. And that one is more damning than anything else. You remember, uh, oh, I can't even remember what it was. A couple of years ago, uh, I taught a, a class on Wednesday nights. It was called People of Influence. And I gave you permission to stop telling people you are a Christian if you don't act like one. If you claim to be one and then go out and live the exact opposite way, you have permission. No, no, no. Please stop telling people you're a Christian, right? Because all that does is hurt the witness of the church, right? All that does is hurt the name of Jesus. All that does is back up that right there. All that does, instead of that being sort of an accusation, that makes that a truth. We have to be mindful of our hypocrisy, our judgmental attitudes and behaviors of other people for their choices. And then we turn around and do the same exact thing, and I'm as guilty as anybody. And then finally, materialism. 
There are so many people, and this one isn't just about Christians, this is for all people, but there are so many people in the world who are looking for, looking for fulfillment and happiness, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. We as, as Christians need to demonstrate, show, live that there is a better way that there is true life and true fulfillment and true happiness but it's not found in anything that we have here that we'll take with us it's found only in 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 Jesus Christ now then like I said there's tons of other barriers but these are just some of the ones I would just sort of spitballing off the top of my head now then here's some here's some uh, here's some ways that we can break through some of these barriers and here's three these things these aren't mine I've, I've gotten these from they're not there so I'll just tell them to you number one we must be committed to non-defensive listening believers particularly those in the majority culture must be willing to listen in the interest of learning and understanding now then please do not uh, please do not hear me saying that we are to shy away from our commitment to biblical truth but the old adage is true even today that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? Truth is good and truth is strong, but truth thrown at somebody or truth used as a weapon can do more damage than good. People have to know you care. Have to know we care. Number two, we must be committed to a kingdom view of current issues. Far too many professing believers are reliant upon the dogmas of political analysis and media personalities as they think their way through major issues confronting our world today. A.W. Tozer once rightly asserted that we can know the world's values by taking Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and turning it inside out. Think about that. Take an opposite, take an inside out reading of the Sermon on the Mount if you want to know what the world values. We have to look at what Jesus values. To become willing disciples of that value system is to have tragically lost sight of the Christian's duty to expose its error. Does the unbelieving world inform your thinking on issues such as immigration or caring for the poor, for example? We need to look at Jesus. Let him be our example. Finally, number three. We must be committed to erring on the side of compassion. Right? I would always rather somebody err on the side of compassion with me. Okay? Right? Wouldn't you? The truth of the matter is that we can find a million and one reasons to do nothing. To remain in our corner of the world while criticizing and pointing out the sins of other people groups. We must allow the Spirit of God to Fill our hearts with the compassion of Christ, the compassion that throws caution to the wind and fulfills the law of love. Jesus, Jesus breaks down all barriers and welcomes all into the kingdom of God. If we are going to be kingdom people, if we are going to call ourselves Christians and tell other people that we are Christians then we must get on board with that mission 
okay? Now then, I know I'm way over my time, but this is really important. What that means is if you are sitting on the sideline, get up and go love somebody or stop calling yourself a Christian, okay? Get up and go show somebody the love of Jesus Christ, okay? This isn't a, hey, we're in, let me just sit down and wait till Jesus comes back to get everybody. This is a, okay, you're in, join the mission, okay? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. It doesn't just mean die to your sins, it means die to your selfishness. Go serve somebody, go love somebody, go extend the grace and mercy and compassion that's been extended to you. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not just, well, I go to church, okay? Yeah, that's great, okay? You know, I go to the bathroom, it doesn't make me a toilet. See? It doesn't work that way. There's more to this than just coming to church. Who would want to live like that? Who would want to just come to church? And that's, that, what do you do to follow Christ? Well, I go to church. And I listen to some dude yell at me for 40 minutes. Sign me up. There's more to it. Okay? Yeah, church and worship, that's a part of it. But it's like a fingernail is part of it. Really being a Christian, I am convinced 95% of it happens outside of here. Okay? It has to happen outside of here. That's why we have a program called Outside the Walls. But even that, it's more than once a month. Being a Christian outside the walls of this building happens every single day. And how we live reflects everything about what we believe, right? And there's no neutral ground. Oh, there's another sermon coming. There's no neutral ground. I'm sorry, I'm really fixing to shut it down, I promise. I promise. But Jesus said, look, there's no neutral ground. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're part of the kingdom of Satan. There's no sitting on the fence and you got to sort it out, okay, by your love and grace and compassion and mercy, you're saying, yes, I am a part of the mission of God, and by doing nothing, you might think you're not putting anything out there, but what Jesus says, if you're not doing anything, you're basically saying, I'm supporting that. I'm supporting the kingdom of Satan and evil. And it's not about that. It is about so much more. Jesus breaks down barriers so that everybody can come in and if we're going to be followers of Christ, we have to join him in that mission. You with me? Let's pray together.